verse 1. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God, as we look into your word tonight, uh, we trust and uh, I believe that uh, this isn't a static book. It's not two-dimensional. Uh, it's not even three-dimensional, but it uh, goes so far beyond that, that this is uh, a book that was inspired by you and given to us as a gift uh, to bear witness to Jesus. Uh, as we study it tonight and as we spend time together as a community, God, would you challenge us? Would you uh, teach us? Would you draw us uh, a step closer to you and who you are? We pray in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Last week or two weeks ago when we met, uh, we challenged some of you that were here to fast. And so the challenge was last night, Saturday, to eat a meal last night and then to fast uh, through today and, and we would be uh, taking communion together. Um, just out of curiosity, how many of you have uh, had the privilege of not eating today? Anybody? Okay. Uh, if I go down tonight, it's because of lightheadedness and somebody called the paramedics. Um, I am so hungry. I woke up this morning hungry and I went to church this morning and it was about 1030 and I'm thinking, I'm starving and I've got all day to go. So it's been a real uh, battle for me this uh, tonight. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, is what Jesus says. He stands up in front of a huge crowd of people, and this is what he has to say. I, I want to tackle this passage in three different ways, asking a couple questions. First is, what does the word righteousness mean? And as we get into it, we'll find that there's much debate over this, and I think that the answer to this question and how you answer this question has huge implications for the way this parable, not this parable, this beatitude plays out. So what does righteousness mean? Uh, secondly, why does Jesus connect it to hunger and thirst? And then lastly, what does it mean to be filled? So the first one, what does righteous mean? Now, typically when you talk about righteousness and you're talking about church, you're talking uh, with church people, and especially if you're talking to a Calvinist, someone who's a little bit more reformed in their theology, uh, you typically get this word connected to righteousness, and the word is imputed. Now, that's a big word, and it essentially means this. To impute something onto someone else is, is basically God gives something or places something on you. And so in this whole conversation about righteousness, it's this idea that God imputes or gives you or places on you righteousness. And uh, it's often connected to uh, your position before God, like how you stand before God. And, and really, it's, it's righteous and unrighteous, saved or not saved, is the kind of connotation. Uh, as we look at this word righteousness, as Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5, there's kind of two schools of thought, two ways to really look at this. The first school of thought is this. It's righteousness as connected to moral or ethical behavior. It's, uh, it's connected to moral and ethical behavior and your position before God. One author says this. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness means that we intentionally devote every aspect of our lives and every molecule of our being to embrace, adopt, and ultimately become morally upright, without guilt or sin, honest, straightforward, virtuous, and honorable. Got that one down, right? You guys are good. You're good with that, right? 
So he says, essentially, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is we devote every fiber of our being to being uh, morally upright and, and virtuous and honorable and all of this type of thing. So if this interpretation is right, then God blesses the people who intentionally do these things. Can you put that one back up there, Greg? Sorry. If this is the way we're going to see righteousness, God blesses. Jesus stands up in front of a huge crowd of people and he says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All the people who do this, you're blessed. And remember, blessing is not just happy, right? That's how it's translated a lot of times. It's this idea that like the favor of God, the I am with you of God, the God is on your side. That's what it means to be blessed. So Jesus stands up in front of a crowd of people and he says, blessed are all of you who do this intentionally with your lives, who set your lives on this, which is a pretty small club when you really get down to it, right? Because who can say they're actually doing this with every fiber of their being? That's not an announcement of grace. This isn't good news. If Jesus stands up in front of a crowd of people and he says, blessed are you who do this, that's not good news. That's more law. That's more things that we have to do in order to get God's blessing. He goes on to say, this author, he says, not only do we just strive for these qualities, but to be like Christ, to become righteousness. In other words, righteousness is a lifestyle in complete conformity to the will of God. It is the lifestyle Christ both finds pleasing and approves of. All of you who are morally upright, virtuous, without sin, and who've achieved this to the degree that you're now Christ-like, Jesus stands up in the midst of a crowd and says, announces to you, God is on your side. Which again, this is not news worthy of an announcement. This is not news worthy of a huge crowd of people because everybody already knows this. This is exactly what religion does and what religion has always done. It says God is on the side of the people who have it together, who follow the rules, who vote properly, who don't do this and don't do that, who are inside of the circle. This is what religion does. And God is with all of the people who have it together. So this is one way to interpret righteousness. If righteousness is this, this is one way to interpret it. And based on our time together in the last couple weeks, those of you who have been here, uh, and, and, and my take on the Beatitudes, which is essentially that this list of things that Jesus says in Matthew 5 is not a prescription for life, or it's not a, a list of qualities that we should aspire to in order to get God's blessing. You could probably guess what I think of this interpretation of the word righteousness, right? Rubbish, total rubbish. I think it misses the point, completely and utterly misses the point, and everything that Jesus is doing in this moment when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what does it mean? That's a good question. I hope I can explain it, or I hope I can get close. The word that's used here in Greek, I'm not going to tell you what it is, because many of you don't care about Greek, and, and I probably can't even an, and pronounce it. But what I want to point out is that the word that's used in Greek has a Hebrew equivalent, right? Because remember, the group of people that Jesus is talking to, many of them are Jewish. Jesus himself was a Jewish traveling uh, preacher, and, and, and later they would call him a rabbi. So he is steeped in Judaism, and so the word that's used here, which Jesus most likely would have spoken, is this Hebrew word, and it's called uh, sadakwa. And one author says it does not refer to an absolute ideal ethical norm, which is essentially the first understanding of righteousness that we've talked about, right? That it's this idea of being morally and ethically upright. He says it has nothing to do with that, but rather it has everything to do with, as he says, it's out and out, a term 
denoting relationship. So this would be the second school of thought. So if you could interpret righteousness in one way, that was one. And here's the other way. Righteousness as connected to God's declaration and his desire and action in and for the world. So if you look at the Old Testament, if, you, if you've got anything in the Gospels, anything that Jesus says or anything that Paul says in the New Testament, your best guess as to try to interpreting what it means and, and what it was, it was in its original context is to figure out well, how was it used in the Old Testament. So if you go back, I've done the work for you. There's a couple that I want to point out to you. Micah 6, chapter 3, refers to the mighty acts of God in creation. So you want to throw that one up there, Greg? I think it is. It says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I have brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. I think there's one more verse there. My people, remember what Bala, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of God. So in this particular instance, righteousness refers to God's action in the world. It refers to God moving and doing something in the world, specifically when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. So righteousness can refer to this idea of God acting in history and God moving his purposes along. It can also refer to uh, peace or shalom. Many of you know the the Hebrew word shalom, which translates peace. If you backtrack to Genesis, before Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what you have is what the Hebrews would call shalom. You have peace. You have harmony. You have a right relationship between the people that God created and himself, the people that he created and each other, uh, the people and the earth, right? And, and really ourselves, we, have a, uh, we understand ourselves properly. There's harmony, there's peace, there's shalom in creation. So one of, one of the ways this word righteousness is used in Isaiah 32 says this, talks about this idea of uh, the peace and shalom of God. You want to throw that one up there, Greg? Is that it right there? The fruit of righteousness will be peace, The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. How blessed, interesting that this this author, uh, Isaiah, connects blessed, the same word that we get Jesus talking about. He connects blessed with hunger and thirst and peace and righteousness. How blessed you will be sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. I guess that's a way of saying that the animals are cool too. Thank you. So you've got this idea of righteousness referring to the act of God in creation. You have it referring to this idea of peace and shalom and God's harmony and what he intended for creation happening. And then also in, uh, in Isaiah 54, it's this idea of God declaring as a gift to creation his, uh, his regards in terms of judge, like how he... How he uh, is disposed towards us, uh, how God would judge us. So this is uh, Isaiah fifty four ten. It says, "Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed." Says the Lord, who has compassion on you. In righteousness you will be established. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So righteousness. In this understanding of it, is often connected to the justice of God, the 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 uh, God's movement in the world and His desire for what 
the world is. It's not simply, uh, and when we talk about justice, a lot of people think, oh yeah, you know, we want justice, which is essentially everybody gets what they deserve. But that's not the connotation that we find in this, in the Hebrew use of the word. In fact, in Job chapter 29, Job says this about putting on righteousness. He says, I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. And here's what happens when justice and righteousness come forth. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. And so in this understanding of righteousness... Righteousness is about the shalom, the peace, the harmony, the justice of God and his actions and his desire in the world. And it's his desire to put the world to right, right? We all uh, look around each other and there's no arguing that there's something messed up in this world. Lots of things are messed up in this world. Nobody argues that. God's desire from the beginning of scripture is to put it back together, to reclaim, to restore, to take back what was his and make it what it was intended to be. And so this idea of righteousness is connected to that desire, connected to that idea, connected to that movement and action in the world. So if you have two options, one being righteousness, i.e. moral and ethical behavior, and two, righteousness being this idea of God's desire for the world and his, his, uh, his action and movement in the world, I would submit that Option number two is a better reading of that word because of the things that we've talked about thus far. Remember, does anybody know, uh, we've, I've said this like a hundred times in our talks, uh, the Beatitudes are the counterintuitive what? Make me proud. Don't leave me out here. The Beatitudes are, it's Jesus standing up and doing something. He makes a counterintuitive announcement to the world about the nature of God and the nature of his kingdom. It's not about blessed. In order to be blessed, in order to have God's blessing, you have to have all these things together and you have to do all these things and you have to check them off. That misses the whole point. Jesus says that the kingdom of God and God's, his, his, the, the economy of God, the way in which God works is different than what the world would say. Because the world would say you have to have all these things together. You have to check them off the list. You have to obey the rules. You have to go to the temple. You have to do the sacrifices. And then God's blessing is yours. Then you have favor with God. Then the I am with you of God is yours. And Jesus says, no, it's backwards and it's upside down. The kingdom of God is not like that. It's like this. It's about God's declaring righteousness. It's about God's declaration of what he wants and, and, and what the world should be. And how we interact with that. So why then does Jesus connect it to hunger and thirsting? Um, maybe if you would, just for a moment. Uh, I know many of you fasted. I know some of you didn't uh, this particular fast, but you've probably fasted uh, in the past. And if you haven't, maybe just turn to, to a neighbor and uh, talk about this experience. And I'll just frame it in a couple ways. Uh, if you fasted with us uh, over the last 24 hours, talk about what it was like. Uh, what did you feel? If you fasted in the past, uh, talk a little bit about, um, you know, what did you feel then and what was that experience like? And if you maybe have never fasted, if you have some questions or some thoughts about fasting, uh, just go ahead and turn to your neighbors and just dialogue for just a minute. Uh, what was this like for you and, or what was it like for you when you have fasted? Go ahead and do that if you would.
All right. Maybe uh, some of you that have fasted in the past or that are, are participating in this fast with us, a little bit about your experience. What's it been like for you um, in the last 24 hours or previously when you fasted before? Just shout out. doesn't matter. Everybody's pointing to Joel over here. What, what's, the, what's, the, what's it been like? How, how has this experience been for you? <laughs> These guys are all going, that was really anticlimactic right there. <laughs> yeah. He's a little grumpy. I would agree. I saw him earlier. He was a little grumpy. So others, what kind of things have you felt? What kind of, uh, how has this challenged you? Yeah, totally. Be disciplined. What else? Dependent? What do you mean by? Okay, yeah. <laughs> that you don't transfer? Yeah. Yep. I was sitting in my office earlier today, and I've got a, a drawer that's just my snack drawer because I always need snacks. And it was so tempting for me to just, like, reach down and grab a, a granola bar or something. That was rough. Really rough. Anybody else? Fasting is a really interesting thing. And uh, there are a couple of different times that you see it in Scripture. Uh, one, of course, Jesus talks about fasting. He says, when you fast, don't tell anybody. So we broke that rule. Um, but there are other times when the community would fast, and they would do so collectively as a body for a particular purpose. And so that's really kind of why we were offering this challenge. But Jesus connects righteousness with hunger and thirst. Why would he do that? I think there's a couple of reasons. One being because righteousness, if you understand it in this sense and not in this sense, righteousness is nothing that you can do. It has nothing to do with you. You can't do anything to deserve or, 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 or work to get righteousness if, it's, if the definition of the word is used like this. Because it's all about God. It's a gift from God. However you define it, whether you're talking about God's declaration about you and therefore you're righteous, or whether you're talking about his desire in the world and his desire to have peace and shalom and harmony and all the things he's working towards. Either way, it's not about you. It's only something that you can long for. It's only something that you can you can uh, uh, sort of strive for or have this aching feeling for, which is exactly what I felt today when I was hungry. I don't know about you guys, but it's like this, I know I need food, and my body is telling me, you're hungry and you need to eat. And I have this desire, this longing, this ache in my belly to feed it, to put something in my mouth, to open up a granola bar and take a bite out of it. Like, I wanted to do that so badly. Jesus connects this idea with to righteousness because righteousness isn't anything that we can achieve on our own. We can't do anything. I think he also does it because the audience that he was speaking to would have known hunger and thirst, right? You're talking about a group of people who live out in the desert, practically, in the Middle East. For us, hunger and thirst, we don't really understand it because there's always enough food and we've got water, you know, aplenty. We, we can get water in any number of different places. But for these people who are sitting down in the midst of this crowd, 
Jesus and often Jewish teachers would use illustrations and stories that made perfect sense to the people who were there. So he taps into something that they already would have known, being hungry and being thirsty. And he says, hunger and thirst, like what you feel in your belly and when, you're, when your mouth is dry and it's hot and it's like 120 degrees and it's the desert and there's no water around, that, that longing and desire that you have, attach that, that feeling to this idea of God's righteousness, of God's righteous action in the world, of, of God and, and him moving towards his purposes and his hope for creation. That's what you should be longing for. As much as you long for food and, and drink. Which is why I started with that stupid illustration about the Olympics, right? Any, anybody who speaks, uh, does public speaking or teaches wants to use stories that are common knowledge among the people. So everybody's watching the Olympics, so as a teacher, I'm going to tap into that. Jesus is a teacher in the first century, a Jewish rabbi. So he taps into hunger and thirst. So if there's th this idea of righteousness defined this way, and he, he connects it to hunger and thirst, what does it mean then to be filled? What does it mean when he says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled? Some, po some folks, uh, scholars and, and Christians alike, will often take this phrase, that they will be filled, and they attach it to the end times, or they attach it to uh, the, the big word for it would be eschatology, right? What will happen in the end? And the idea is that one day God will come back, and, and, and if you hunger and thirst for righteousness now, one day Jesus is coming back, and you will be filled at that point. Now, could you imagine if Jesus stands up in front of a massive crowd of people, hundreds, thousands of people who know what it means to be hungry and know what it means to be thirsty, and he says, here's the deal, guys. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because in 2,000 years or so, there's going to be a big banquet, and you'll be able to eat then. <laughs> I mean, what, what is that? Of course, that's not what he's talking about. But some people will say that when, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, they, they attach it to what will happen in the end. Though I wouldn't disagree with that, I would say Jesus offers much more than that. Jesus says, stands up on a hillside, and he says, all of you who have a longing and an ache for something else, all of you who have a longing and an ache, who are in tune with what, is, what the world is like and what God wants it to be, all of you who have a longing and an ache for that, you will be filled then and you can be filled now. Jesus oftentimes speaks as a prophet. He speaks as somebody who, uh, who has a, a prophetic voice for the people of God. And Jesus says that the kingdom life of God where there will be enough to go around, where there will be enough food, where you can feast on righteousness and justice and any, anything else that's good, when, when there will be more, than that, more of that than you could ever imagine. It's not just something in the future, but it's something that's here and it's something that's now. And of course, we know, looking back in time, that that comes through Jesus, that his life, his work, what he was up to, what he was doing in the world, was setting the stage for what God would do decisively at the cross, which would ensure what we have in the future. And Jesus says that the kingdom life of God not only will happen then, but it can happen now to those of you who are in Christ, those of you who say yes and follow this road. Jesus says, you will be filled not only then, but also now. And gang, this, for a group of people who are sitting on a hillside, gathered around, 
This is good news. He's, he's addressed the poor in spirit, right? This is the spiritual zeros, the weak, the lowly, the beggars, those who mourn, those who are in tune with how bad the world is and whose hearts are broken in the midst of it. Those who are meek, the humble and the gentle uh, with, with this attitude that's free from, you know, trying to get revenge. Uh, and those who now are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, who ache and long for God's shalom and his peace and his justice. He says, it's here and it's now. And it's available to you here and now, not only in the future, but now. Jesus says, blessed are you. The favor of God is yours. The God is on your side. And this it's upside down. It's backwards. It's counterintuitive. But Jesus announces to this crowd that the economy of God and the kingdom of God is all about God and what he can do. And it meets you and it meets me in our hopelessness and our inability to do anything good. And he says, there's a new start. There's something new available. There's something fresh. There's forgiveness and there's life and it's offered to you and to me. And so Jesus stands up and he says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness because you will be filled. I want to invite the uh, worship team to come up and uh, they're going to lead us in a song, kind of a a special number, if you will. Uh, And it really gets at this idea that that I ended with. Of Jesus doesn't just stand up and say, this is all good and well, and it's for the future. And if you just hang with me for 2,000 years or, or longer, then it's going to be fine. He says, no, the kingdom of God, the life with God is available to you here and to you now. And I think so often in church and, and in Christianity, we sell Jesus and say that someday in the future, when you die, you won't go to hell, but you'll get to go to heaven. And I think that's just really, really reduced. It's not anything less than that. I'm not saying that's not true. But what Jesus comes and he offers to people is so much more than that. And he says it's available to you now here in the midst of your brokenness. And that's the earth-shattering news. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The I am with you of God, the favor of God is on the poor in spirit, the spiritual zeros who have nothing to offer, the beggars. Blessed are you. And God meets us, meets you in that place. Not once you've gotten it all together. Not once you've ticked all the things off your list. Not once you've applied all the rules and you've obeyed them all. Then the blessing of God is yours. No, that's not the way it works. Because we can't do anything to deserve it, ever. And the counterintuitive, earth-shattering, this-just-in news of Jesus is, blessed are you, the poor in spirit. All of the people who the world says, the blessing of God is not yours. Jesus flips it upside down. And he turns it, turn it, turns it on its head. And he says, no, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your inability to do anything, God comes alongside of you and says, I am with you. And that's the incredible news of the Beatitudes. That's the incredible news of the gospel. And it's here and it's now. It's not something that you would just look forward to in the future. So as the band sings this song, I, I want us just to press into that idea and ask questions like, what does that mean that this is available here and now? How does that change the way I live life, relate to my neighbor, 
pursue this God idea? How does that change things? And then we're going to take some time to end this fast together by taking communion. So we'll uh, hear this song, and then uh, we'll move into a time of communion.